Good morning, Christ Bible Church. It should be good. We are so glad that uh, you are here to join us as we gather as God's people to hear his word. Uh, as Jerry mentioned in the call to worship, if you're new or visiting or unfamiliar with this guy up here, uh, my name's Randy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the great privilege and honor of uh, helping us work through 1 Kings 9 today as we continue preaching through the book of Kings. If you're visiting, we do provide scripture journals uh, for every book that we go through. There's a stack of them in the back corner over there, so if you would like a journal to take notes in as we're going through the book of Kings, feel free to grab one of those and take notes uh, this morning and keep it as uh, our gift to you. But let's dive in. 1 Kings chapter 9, and we're going to start by uh, just simply reading the first nine verses together this morning. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and you do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, your word to Solomon, your word to us today. We pray that as we meditate on these words, as we look at them, as we seek to understand them, Lord, that your spirit would be working in our hearts and our minds to help us become conformed to your image, to help become the people that you've called us to be, that we might faithfully live for you and serve you all of our days. We thank you for your encouragement, your word here in Kings. Might it encourage us, your people, as we gather this morning. Amen. So what is happening in this story if you've been here the last few weeks, you're up to speed. If not, Solomon, the king of Israel, has just finished building a magnificent temple. He had this wonderful ceremony, this elaborate, wonderful, deeply theologically rich prayer in chapter 8, pointing the people towards God, consecrating the temple to the Lord. And as the story then picks up, 
we are asking, what will happen next? How will God respond to what Solomon has been doing? Well, the Lord appears to him a second time in the narrative. First, we have this back in 1 Kings chapter 3 when Solomon was just beginning his reign. And now here in 1 Kings 9, we have a second vision, a second visitation from the Lord where he appears and addresses Solomon. The first time, if you remember, Solomon had expressed a great desire to lead the people. When the Lord appeared to him and said, Solomon, what do you want from me? He didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for a long life. He didn't ask for fame. He said, give me wisdom that I might lead your people well. This was an honorable and a selfless desire that God responded to by granting King Solomon wisdom beyond anyone else in the world. And additionally, he said, because you have not asked for these other things, I'm going to give them to you anyway. You will have great success. You will have fame. You will have wealth. But this second appearance has a slightly different tone. It starts out with an encouragement and a wonderful reminder for God's people. The Lord hears their prayers. Solomon has just prayed. He's dedicated this temple to God, and God shows up and says, I have heard your prayer, and indeed, I will live here. This will be my dwelling place. The temple will be a wonderful reminder for God's people that I am present in their lives. He says he puts his eyes and his ears there. Now, this doesn't mean that God all of a sudden is confined to the temple, that this is the only location Israel must go, that if they pray in the fields, God doesn't hear them. No, he's saying, when you show up to the temple, there is this tangible reminder that I am here in your midst. God is present. And when the people show up for their worship and they lay eyes on the temple and they see this magnificent building, and they remember this prayer of Solomon, they should be reminded that their God is not a distant God, but a God who is present and dwelling in their midst. Maybe you need to be reminded of, as we just start this morning, that our God is a God who dwells in our midst. He's not a God that's far off, but he is a God who is near. He sees us, he hears us, and he indeed is sustaining us even now. We read verse 3, these first words of the Lord to Solomon and should be called to trust in God and find comfort in his presence. But this vision is not necessarily a vision of encouragement. And indeed, as we turn to verse 4, this visitation from God has a much more abrupt tone than this first visitation back in 1 Kings 3. It's marked not by great hope, but by great concern in verses 4 through 9. God seeing the temple built, responding to the prayer of the king by saying, indeed, I will be in this temple, then goes on to serve a warning to the king who has flourished in every single way. If this king does not take his faith seriously, great harm will come on this nation and on himself. And in the midst of all of his accomplishments and all of his prosperity, Solomon is implored here to not neglect the Lord. We understand just by looking at our own lives that the times when we are most comfortable, most prosperous are some of the times that we are most vulnerable to compromise. Something the Lord is trying to remind Solomon of this. And like I said, we know this objectively to be true. Think about if you have little kids, right? You're sitting in bed in the morning. Maybe this is just me because our kids wake up at like 530 in the morning 
uh, you know, they're a thorn in the flesh in this way in the mornings to us. And we pray, Lord, let them sleep. And he says, no, it's for your good. Uh, right? But no, what is the temptation? The kids come in, daddy, 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 mommy, mommy, whatever. Right? And you're just like, I, I would give anything for 30 minutes of sleep. Right? And you're willing to like, I don't, go play video games, go run in the street. I don't care. Just don't bug me for 30 minutes. I'm still tired. Right? We know like, this is not good. This is a neglect of our responsibilities. But because we're trying to hold on to the last drops of a good thing, we are sometimes willing to compromise in ways that we wouldn't be at other moments. We would give anything to have another 30 minutes of peace and quiet, to watch the game, to read a book, to see a movie without interruption. And so often we're doing anything to drag this out for just a few more minutes and enjoy the last drops of this. And Solomon, as we have turned these pages of Scripture, as we're now to chapter 9, is comfortable. The Lord knows that Solomon is at great risk of sliding away from having his hope and trust firmly in God. Moreover, this section here is not just a warning for the king, but for all of God's people. In verses 3 and 5, when it says the word you, when God is addressing uh, Solomon in this vision, he's speaking directly to Solomon in a singular form, but then in verses 6 and onward, the you, which we don't pick this up in our uh, English translations, is actually a you all. First to the king, now to all of the people, hear my words. You are at great risk in your comfort. Don't neglect the Lord. Don't let the prosperity that you have experienced be something that drags you away. This is a message not for, just for the king, but for all of the king's subjects and all of their descendants. And Solomon is invited, as we are this morning, to hear the word of the Lord and to take it seriously, lest ruin come on the people of Israel. Of particular focus in this vision, this visitation of God to Solomon is idolatry. The king and the people must not go off to serve other gods, to worship other gods, if in their comfort, in their prosperity, they turn away from the worship of God, the result will be catastrophic. How so? God says, Israel will be cut off from the land. They will be transformed from a nation, if we've been following the story of kings, that's renowned for its wisdom. People from all over the world have traveled to hear the wisdom of Solomon, to see the work of the Lord in this land but it will be transformed from something people come to desire to see to a nation that is a byword or a proverb. Hear the wisdom of God or become a note of the wisdom of God. Look what happens when the people abandon me. God is saying, you will be transformed. You will be catastrophically cut off from the land. This is all tied to the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28. We talked briefly about this last week. And again, if you weren't here, I would encourage you just to go back and listen to that because it will help fill in so much here. The nation, though, of Israel was meant by its obedience to be a beacon of wisdom among the nations. And instead, if they have neglected God, if they turn from him, they will become an object of ridicule. This magnificent temple that people would travel from all over the land to come to see, to be in awe of what how great this building is, how great the God of Israel will be, will instead be something that visitors come to and they see a heap of rubble. A reminder of what happens when the people turn their back on their God. The message here is consistent. 
Although God has consecrated this temple, priority for these people and the king is to be obeying his commands. And indeed, we're reminded here that obedience is no small piece of our relationship with God, but indeed holds one of the most central places. If we follow God, we are expected to obey God. He is the king. We are the servants. What he asks, like a Chick-fil-A, my pleasure. We respond and do. This is a high calling for any believer, but as we focus here on 1 Kings 9, it's a very high calling for the king who is God's representative over the people and who will set the trajectory for those under his care. What is important to the king will be important to the people. So God reminds Solomon, follow me. This is not some type of legalism, do this or else. But what God is showing Solomon here and reminding us as we hear his word this morning is that there is a structure that God has put in place between the ordering of relationships between his creation, us as humans, and him. Since the beginning of creation, God has called his people to obey. Even Adam and Eve, if we go to the very first pages of scripture, are called to live a life of obedience to God. And so God is reminding Solomon here of the importance of maintaining this right relationship with God. Don't abandon my commands and go and serve other gods. It will only bring ruin. But at the heart of human disobedience from the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden up until now, we see that there's constantly a failure in humans to trust in the Lord. A belief that other paths might lead to success in life, to, to having salvation perhaps even. Romans 1.25 reminds us of this when it writes and talks about those who exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, things that might be physical objects or human ideologies and systems. As we hear these words from God to Solomon this morning, we should ask ourselves, where does our trust lie? Does it lie in the Lord? Or does it lie in created things, whether that be other people, in wealth, in the wisdom of man through things like TED Talk and self-help gurus, secular therapies, on and on and on. If we evaluate our lives, if we stop and pause and look at ourselves this morning, what do we honestly have hope in? What are we honestly trusting to have a, a sense of security or insecurity? When we look at our lives, what are the things that happen that make us feel like, Life is crumbling underneath us. That's a helpful tool in diagnosing maybe those are ways and areas that I'm putting my trust in rather than God. Hear God's word of warning to Solomon this morning. Hear his word of warning to the people of Israel and place your trust in him. Obey his commands. But as this warning is wrapping up, there's hope for God's people. Because when we look out at the world, we often see rebellion everywhere. People who have rejected God, who have rejected the Creator, who are going their own ways. We are reminded by words like these, that no matter what, those who walk in disobedience to the Creator, those who rebel against God, those who reject His saving grace, and instead walk according to their own desires, will ultimately face destruction. Simply put, we have a reminder here that a life of rebellion is not a winning strategy. It might look good, but like the suns, it will crumble. 
It's a basketball reference. You were all waiting for it. It's a little bit of therapy for myself. Someday, we are reminded in Scripture, every knee will bow before God, recognize his authority over their lives. But unfortunately, with those who have lived in persistent rebellion, they will face in that moment a final jury, a final judgment, and they will be sentenced for their rebellion. So after this call to be a fully devoted people of God, though, King's transitions into an overview of Solomon's life. Where is he now, halfway through his reign, 20 years in? What does it look like for Solomon? Let's read the rest of chapter 9 this morning. At the end of 20 years, in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Haram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired. King Solomon gave to Haram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Haram came to Tyre or came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given, they did not please him. Therefore he said, "What kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother?" So they are called the land of Cabal to this day. Haram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house. And the, and the Milo, and the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazer, and Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire, and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon built Gezer. And lower Beth Haran and Balath and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah. And all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites were not of the, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers, they were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went on from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he had built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Gabar, which is near Aloth in the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Adam. And Haram set sent with his fleet, his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought their gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. What do we begin to see here? What is happening? First, Solomon is very prosperous. And that God, I believe, did not offer the warning in the beginning of this chapter for no reason. 
Indeed, we have been seeing cracks in Solomon as the story has progressed. Perhaps none more significant than verse 1 that we read today that we might have just glossed over as we began the reading, which says, as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and what? All that Solomon desired to build. What about 8.13 from last week when he prays and dedicates the temple? Solomon says, I have indeed built you an exalted house. We begin to ask, who is truly receiving the praise here? Who is in charge in Solomon's life? Is Solomon indeed building for the glory of God, or has it been for his own glory? It is clear that he does trust the Lord. His desire to follow him is marked by the magnificent prayer in chapter 8 and even the words at the very end of this chapter when it talks about him offering sacrifices to the Lord at the temple which he was commanded as an Israelite to do. Some would read this last half of this chapter and conclude that this here is a testament to Solomon's great power and success that he obtained before he goes wayward. But I believe that's not the case. I believe that what we see here is something is changing. It's changing in the tone of the way that God had addressed Solomon, and as indeed we start to see Solomon himself has changed. His primary concern in 1 Kings 3 is the good of his people, that he might lead them wisely, but that no longer appears to be the case. And so what I believe we see here in verses 10 through 26 is the temptation that wealth and prestige brings in leading people away from obedience to the Lord. What does this look like? Well, first it looks like a temptation to focus on yourself. As I mentioned, Solomon had built all that he had desired. This phrase is repeated throughout chapter 9 here. Success has a unique ability in our lives to cause us to chase more success. And as I have just mentioned, the temptation that Solomon appears to be giving into is that he has had his heart set on things. He has done all that he has desired. He is the one that built the house of God. Something that he notes in the verse I read in 8.13, but that he also includes throughout the prayer in 8.20, 8.27, 8.44, 8.48. The main person Solomon appears to be concerned about is himself. God did did give Solomon riches and wealth beyond measure. But here in chapter 9, he receives 120 talents of gold in verse 14, and then in verse 28 at the end, 420 talents of gold. You're asking yourself, what in the heck is a talent? Uh, A talent is about 75 pounds, which means Solomon has received in this chapter alone somewhere in the realm of 42,000 pounds of gold. Right? His wealth is astonishing. This is in addition to all the gold and everything to build the temple. And this number will continue to increase dramatically as we move into chapter 10 and beyond. The more success Solomon has, the more the story begins to show that his focus narrows more and more onto himself and not on the God he's been called to serve or the people he's been called to care for. And indeed, we might ask, where is the description of Solomon's glory in chapters 4 and 5 where prosperity, a good righteous king, resulted in terms of food and drink and happiness and joy amongst the people. Why is gold all of a sudden appearing here in such abundance, taking a prominent role in describing Solomon immediately after the warning has just been given in chapter 9? 
Ian Provon notes that these are interesting questions, particularly in view of texts like Proverbs 38, which is attributed to Solomon, that warns about the danger wealth brings, and the danger particularly in light of Deuteronomy 17.17 of apostasy that's joined with wealth for the king. Solomon appears to be coming more and more focused on himself. The more success he has, the more prosperity he experiences, the greater the temptation for him is to look at himself and say, how can I continue to improve? How can I get more comfort, wealth, prestige, fame? But that's not all that begins to happen. Prestige and wealth also shows us that there's a temptation to have a lack of value in others. The second issue that begins to emerge here, describing Solomon at year 20 of his reign, is not that he's just focusing on himself, it's the way that he's treating other people. It's changed. If you go all the way back to 1 Kings 5, when we have the first story of this guy, Haram of Tyre, there is a brotherhood between Solomon and this man. They work in a mutually beneficial relationship, but now there's signs that this relationship has turned one-sided. As payment for his services, Solomon appears to have agreed to give Haram some cities. But as Haram exits Tyre and comes to these cities that Solomon has now put under his domain to examine what life inside the land of God's people will look like, what does he find? Worthless land. We're told he names them Cabal, which means like nothing. Haram has provided great value in labor, in wood, now even gold to Solomon. And in return, it has been given to him a form of land that is worthless. You've provided me a bunch of things. Solomon says, here, I'm going to give you something that has no value. It's not an even trade. And it appears that Solomon has taken advantage of him. Solomon's own success has led him to a place where the man who considered himself a brother of Solomon is now instead treated like his servant. Haram must know that he has no choice, for although he's like, this isn't fair, this land stinks, what's he do? He goes and gets more gold for Solomon. He keeps serving him. He knows that he is now in service and must bring tribute to King Solomon. Worse, which isn't even the focus here, but we should ask, What about the people in these cities? Solomon is their king, and he's just traded them away for some gold. Joshua had trusted in the Lord when he conquered the land that God had given to the people, rejoices in God's provision and promised inheritance, and yet Solomon here now gives away, as part of a deal in order to get himself more gold, the promised inheritance that God had promised his people. I'm going to get more for myself, and I'm going to take away from you to do it. This appears to be where Solomon is headed. What's even more ironic is that Proverbs, again, attributed to Solomon, provides commentary, repeating the injunction of Deuteronomy 19.14, which says this, Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. Solomon has not listened to his own advice, nor the law, which he's called to obey, which he's called to follow, and has traded away the people of God and the land that God has given them in exchange for greater wealth. And in the midst of these exchanges with Haram, we have further commentary about the state of God's king. If we remember scripture, some of you may know, some of you may not know, you go all the way back to Judges, Judges 129, 
we're told that Ephraim did not drive the Canaanites out who lived in Gezer. So that the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, uh, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. When God's people were to take the promised land, when they were supposed to get their inheritance, they were told to remove all of the Canaanites from the land, and yet for centuries have been unable to do so. And it appears here in 1 Kings 9 that this has continued all the way until the reign of Solomon. But it's not Solomon, God's king, who is going to finally fulfill this obedience to God. No, it's going to be the foreign king, Pharaoh, who as a dowry, as payment, as a gift for his wife's marriage to Solomon is going to go defeat the people there, take out the Canaanites, and then give them to Solomon as a gift. Pharaoh completes the task that should have been the king's task to complete. He does so as a gift. What does, what does Solomon do? In turn, he enslaves these people, forcing them to build projects for his own desires. In pursuit of his own desires, Solomon has shown he is becoming more like the Pharaoh of Exodus, who treated God's people poorly, who enslaved them so that he might make them build his own monuments. Solomon is doing the same, forcing foreigners to do his work for his own glory so that he might receive more fame or wealth. Just as he had done with Haram, instead of causing the name of God and the generosity of God to be displayed and praised among the foreign nations, Solomon has caused God's reputation to be damaged as he seeks his own desires. Why highlight this? Well, we are marked today in a society that values wealth and comfort above almost anything else. The greatest good is providing a better house, more entertainment, more toys, more stuff in general for oneself and one's family. These things are not inherently bad, just as wealth is not inherently bad for Solomon. Indeed, God had promised great wealth to Solomon. Would he promise something that was bad? No. But the question we are asking as we read and as we're wrapping up this morning is not, did, Sol or did God give Solomon what he had promised in that first vision, but rather, is Solomon being wise with what God has given to him? In the midst of a life where we have so many choices, many things calling for us to find our satisfaction of them, we're called to look at 1 Kings 9, to look at Solomon and ask, is he wise in his choices? Or has he allowed what God has given to him as a gift move him away from a deep and complete trust in the Lord that it appears he had in those opening chapters? This is indeed the question that we must ask as the chapter finishes with Solomon's worship of God in verse 25, which he was commanded to do, which was right and good for him to do, sandwiched between his desire to please his wife the princess of Egypt in verse 24, and a desire to enrich himself in verses 26 and 28, which ironically also includes the first time that we ever have a note of Israelites having a navy, right? He makes ships for the first time to go to more and more distant lands so that he can get more and more gold. And so we're left asking as the chapter concludes, will God indeed be squeezed out as Solomon continues to try and choose to worship God while satisfying himself. And we should ask ourselves these same questions. 
Are we sidelining God? Are we putting God on the periphery while making our desires the priority? Have we taken the good things that God has given to us, whether it be wealth, prestige, our kid, our jobs, even our recreation, and made it the object of our worship, that which we look to for hope, joy, purpose, that which we ultimately place our trust in? And so as the chapter comes to a close, we see that as good as Solomon has been, he ultimately is looking out for himself. In the midst of all that he has provided for his people, in the midst of his wealth and the success of the kingdom, the prosperity of the people, we read this and conclude that we are still waiting for a better king than Solomon. We read and ask, cannot God provide a better king for his people? And we are invited this morning to compare Solomon and the true king, Jesus. Solomon, the king of great power, wealth, knowledge, wisdom. He experiences success wherever he goes. The people prosper under his rule, but he ultimately is a king who takes and consumes and moves his own desires forward. But then we have Jesus, the greatest king, the one we truly long for, the king who instead of taking more for himself, laid his own life down, who gave up everything for his people, living according to the desires of the Father, submitting himself in every way to obedience. We long for something or someone that we can trust. This is why there is and always will be a market in the secular world for those who have books like Five Steps to a Fulfilled Life, The Secret to Contentment. You could make up a million uh, titles. These are make-believe titles, but I'm positive if you Google them in Amazon, there is a book called These Things. Kings is pointing us to not trust in the created, but instead the creator. He alone is trustworthy. He alone can provide for us. He alone holds the keys to peace, joy, and fulfillment in this life if we would just lay our desires to the side and say, here I am, Lord. Let your desires be my desires. I want to follow you. You are the good king, the true king. A couple questions as we finish this morning. First, Where do you find the greatest sense of security in your lives? How might this be a temptation in your life to trust in the created rather than the creator? Two, what is at the root of your desires? Do you want to live for Jesus or do you want to achieve a greater sense of comfort, maybe even doing good things for those that are around you, but putting you at the center? What does your use of God's provision say about your priorities? Has God's provision been primarily used for you? Or have you used God's provision as a mean of leading and serving others? What does your use of God's provision say about your ultimate obedience to God? And finally, do the words of John 14, 15 ring true in your life? If you love me, you will obey my commands. This is what we are asked of. This is the picture that we see. And as we leave this morning, the questions we must ask ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your enduring word, your word that brings us hope, joy, confidence. Lord, not because it fills us with thoughts, but Lord, it fills us with a sense of who you are. And just as the temple 
was meant to be a sign of your wonderful presence, we look to your word and say, Lord, we thank you that as we read, we realize that you are not a God who is distant, but a God who is near, a God who calls us to obedience, but also promises to care for us, to sustain us, to uphold us by the power of your word. And so we ask as your people this morning that you indeed would make your desires our desires, that we wouldn't be marked by a people who are simply trying to achieve more and consume more, but we would be a people who want to see you glorified, that our lives would be lived for your glory, that we would use your provisions for your glory. And so, Father, do that in our hearts, transform our minds, transform us from the inside out that we might be like you, that we might take and follow that path of Christ, who though being in the very image of God, humbled himself, became man, and served. Lord, make us like Jesus. Let us hold fast to Jesus, the true Savior, the one who has purchased us out of captivity and brought us into right relationship with you. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask that it would work according to the power of your spirit to bring fruit in our lives. Amen.